Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm the managing partner of the Strategic Valuation and Advisory Services Practice for Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. The SVAS practice specializes in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of companies and intellectual property. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck, so please join that as well if you'd like to engage. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is, should I interview my customers? And according to data from Price Intel, most software as a service companies do fewer than 10 customer interviews per month, which is uh, surprising given that most SaaS companies have thousands, if not millions of uh, millions of customers. And, um, uh, you know, as, as data becomes increasingly important and it's it's been this way for a while you know data has been gold for the last 20 years now but you know, as as we develop greater analytic capability as we develop greater ai and as we move kind of philosophically to a more evidence-based management approach society-wide uh, i think this notion of interviewing customers becomes more acute and, and of course one of the 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 more I guess maybe it's not important is not the right word, but certainly better known uh, tools for understanding customer satisfaction is something called the net promoter score. And generally, um, that's best achieved or understood through customer interviews, although I suppose you could do those through online surveys and so forth. But um, clearly, you get more, you get richer data when you actually talk to people as opposed to asking them to click on buttons on a website. And so I hope you'll agree. You know, I'm a data junkie as it is, and I have someone coming on today that's a fellow data junkie. So this is going to be data junkie to data junkie action here. And for the other data junkies out there, I think you're going to like the show and, and certainly hope that you will. And joining us today is Carolyn Kopp, who is founder and managing partner of CEK and Partners, a market research, branding, and digital communications firm. Carolyn is passionate about delivering strategic insights that transform brands. Clients benefit from her team's ability to mine data and extract gems to find insights that truly differentiate their brands. She guides and positions them to reach the next level. She holds an MBA in international business, sorry, international business. Carolyn Kopp started her career on Madison Avenue in New York and has worked at top 10 global agencies in Europe and the Asia Pacific markets. 
Carolyn is the founder and leader of CEK and Partners, a 20-person firm of experts across market research, branding, and digital marketing communications uh, fields. As a woman-owned firm, CEK delivers work that enables brands to build awareness, establish thought leadership, and generate demand to drive business growth. CEK Partners Innovation Workshops have generated new product concepts for Fortune 50 companies. Each concept is expected to generate a minimum of $300 million in annual revenue. CEK has generated $600 million in annual in aggregate revenue for its clients over the 13 years of its operation and has completed over 1,200 engagements and counting. Thank you for that, to- for that introduction. I appreciate it. I'm really honored and excited to be here with another data junkie. Yes. Well, thank you for coming. <laughs> so welcome to the program. So um, why, why, why are people excited or why are people saying the best practices now includes interviewing customers? Well, I think really best practices, if, if we take it higher to, to what you've said, it's really gathering insights um, you know, and there's so many great, wonderful techniques that are effective and speaking with customers is just one of those techniques, but certainly, um, you know, whether it's surveys, whether it's, um, online bulletin boards, whether it's focus groups or whether it's in-depth interviews, there's so many great ways to, to capture insights about what customers are thinking, how they're behaving and how that has changed over the past couple of years. So when is the right time to interview customers? You know, there's usually critical junctures where you want to understand the latest attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. Uh, Those critical junctures could be anything from you're getting ready to launch uh, and develop a new product and you want to understand market viability for a product concept. Well, in that case, you might want to speak with uh, not only customers, but prospective customers who haven't purchased from you before or even lost customers to understand um, where that fits in with their their needs. Um, So there's, you know, doing, you know, you have a new marketing campaign, you want to understand um, customer sentiment and be prepared. Anytime you're making an investment, and you're going out into the market, you want to make sure that you're informed. So I want to ask you about talking about prospective customers, because one of the big buzzwords around Atlanta with startups, and I know you don't do a ton of work with startups, but but you're certainly familiar with, with what they do. But one of the buzzwords around startups is, is a notion called customer discovery, right? Investors want to know what conversations have you had with prospective customers? And you know, you you do interviews with people for a living. So I'm curious. I, I think you have unique insight to this. I, I think when when prospective customers are involved, I think there's a predisposition psychologically to want to tell the interviewer what you think they want to hear, right? You want to be people want to be positive. There's a natural predisposition maybe to not be entirely honest, but rather be be encouraging, right? Because there's no cost to that, the interviewee of, of doing so. As an interviewer, how do you, how do you cut through that? Is, do you, is it interviewing technique? Is it, is it structuring the questions correctly? Is it something that has to do with the post-interview data analytics? Or, or is it something that you sort of have to live with in terms of whether or not 
prospective customers are willing to be truthful to you and tell you, nah, I don't want to buy it. Your baby's ugly. Get out of here. Because I, I, I don't think that happens as often as it does when the actual purchase decision is put in front of them. Yeah, I think that's a really great question and a really strategic one. Thank you for asking that. Um, I think what's really important is stepping back from the actual conversations and thinking through the design of the research. All of our studies are custom designed. So we think through, does a study have to, we, we call it blind, should it be blind where the participant does not know who's sponsoring the study? And that way they're not going to try to please anyone. And that becomes especially important again with the design of the study. They've chosen a third-party partner again, to help be that objective voice. They're not going to, you know, lead the conversation. So there's really those, those three pieces of um, an experienced moderator, having a blind study, and then having a, a third party moderator. So do you, is, is best practices that you simply try to interview as many customers as you possibly can or is there a way to, you know, do you, do you uh, work out sample sizes using the math, the math that's out there that tell you how many customers you need to interview to get a certain, achieve a certain confidence level? Say I told you analytics people, you'd be happy with the geekiness here. Do, <laughs> do right, you get that deep? Do you get, do you go, do you go that deep with something like this or? You might not be too happy with this answer, but when we do what's called qualitative research and we're having discussions with customers, it's not going to be statistically significant. It will be directional. But certainly we want to understand and think through the sample. So if a customer, if, if, a, if a client wants to speak to customers, it's important to understand what is the lens that they want to, you know, is it a certain um, position, a, a certain title within a department of a company? Um, is it a certain size of, of the company? Is it a certain industry segment? What if it's all three of those things? Then all of a sudden it's, okay, well, we want to speak only with manufacturers and um, a, a director level or above, and we want to hear from companies across three revenue ranges, you know, less than a billion, um, one to two billion and two billion plus. I'm just, you know, shooting from the hip here. All of a sudden that determines how many people you need to recruit, right? If there's quotas for a company size, you want to, at, at a minimum, we recommend five and always an odd number. <laughs> yep. So kind of that tiebreaker, if you will. Yep. So let me, let me ask this, uh, and you know, I have, have had this conversation before, but I think our listeners will benefit. Why wouldn't you strive for some sort of statistical significance? Is it, I, I don't want to lead the witness here, so I'm just going to leave that open-ended. Why, why, why would you not try for a statistically significant sample? Well, I think part of it is you have to remember that when you have discussions, if it's in-depth interviews or focus groups, you're not having someone answer every question. You're not forcing them, you must answer this question. It's, it's a discussion. And there might be some questions that you skip because someone's not comfortable or they don't have the expertise to answer the question. So you're, you're really from one conversation to another, you might serve up, you know, 10 out of 15 of the questions. And not to mention just 
the sheer number of people you would have to speak to. Today, we find that we really want to deliver insights faster to meet the demands of our, our, our clients and to move through you know, hundreds of interviews. It would be it would be very doable, but it's just not necessary. Not to mention you start to identify themes after you've spoken with three to five people. So you'll just start to see those same themes, even if you spoke to 20 people. So let's just call it at five yeah. per, per, you know, per segment, if you will. But you could have, you know, 10 segments. And in that case, you might be speaking to 50 people. And I hadn't thought of a point that you just brought up is that, the, you know, just, just because you're talking to somebody doesn't mean that they'll answer all the questions, which means that if you wanted to have a statistically significant sample, you have to factor in the fact that not all the questions will be answered, which means your sample size is even greater, which means more expense, more time. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, and as you said, at the end of the day, you may not gain that much more insight from a statistically significant sample. Mm-hmm. Well, we find a lot of time. Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, we find that the best, you know, you can complement these discussions with doing quantitative studies. So you might have, you know, 15, 20, 30 in-depth conversations, get some very good directional insights and findings. And depending on how much rigor and, and how much you're investing in a product launch or a marketing campaign or a rebranding, it might warrant saying, okay, we've got some great directional insights. Let's take those and craft an online survey and get those statistically significant insights with a larger population. So certainly they work hand in hand depending on the rigor that's needed. So you, you spoke about a magic number five, which I, I, I find fascinating. You know, I don't do what you do for a living. That, that's lower than I would have imagined. Um, how do you select the five? Who are the lucky five? Well, keep in mind that, um, you know, we could have eight segments that we want to speak to, right? So, and five within each of those segments. So all of a sudden you've got 40 people that you're speaking with, but the characteristics of the five. So it could be, um, you know, much of it is, is making sure that the people match and, and get through that filter and qualify to speak with you. So certainly consumer interviews, you're going to find those people faster. But when you start talking about B2B studies, you're working from a much smaller universe. So at that point, really, it's just a a matter of who meets the qualifications and, and the specs of the participant. And are they available within the window of the study? So, um, when when you when you you make that selection i'm i'm curious about something i'm kind of going off script here but i know that it's common to compensate to compensate survey participants generally to participate in a survey um do you find that's also the case with customers do you do you have to budget for customers being willing to talk to you to being compensated for their time to talk to you about their own experience with you you know, that's interesting because there's different types of customers there. We really bucket it into three types of customers. One are the lost customers. You know, they're, they're no longer mm. 
they're no longer your customer. There's your current customer who should be willing to speak with you without being paid. Right. And of course, there's your prospective customer who is, you're going to need to incent them to speak with you. So that's really the rule of thumb. Interesting. Yeah, and, and interesting. We hadn't, we hadn't even talked about customers who've left and, uh, how, how do you do you do that a lot? And if so, how do you find that? Because there's a there's a saying I'm sure you're familiar with that you know a happy customer will tell nobody, but an unhappy customer will tell nine thousand people. Mm-hmm. So I wonder are are people who are unhappy actually more willing to participate because they just can't wait to unload on the company that pissed them off, basically. <laughs> Well, keep in mind, a past customer, especially when we talk about B2B, they may not be unhappy. It could be that the um, the project sponsor changed companies, and so mm. their company went with another vendor or another relationship. Um, it could be that their budgets were cut, and they you know, had to eliminate a, a partnership and consolidate. So a lost customer in the B2B world may not be unhappy, um, but rather... You know, when we do speak with lost customers, it's really valuable when you're positioning a brand. Because remember, when you position a brand, you want it to be any positioning that you you articulate, you want it to be defendable, ownable, and true. So if you get that 360 of your current customers, your lost customers, and your prospective, prospective customers all of a sudden, you know if it's defendable or true. Because if you're thinking one thing, but people have left because that's not the case, it, it really helps to ground work in the defendable and true piece, at least in the B2B world. Um, absolutely, I agree in the consumer world. A lost customer is probably, probably someone who's grumpy and... <laughs> And didn't love something, whether it was, I'm thinking about things that happened today with, um, you know, return policies with everything being online or not being able to get a hold of someone on, on the phone. You know, all of a sudden there's, there's different reasons why right. someone might not be happy. But I think absolutely it's important to understand when you talk about that net promoter score, what are, how, what is the percentage of detractors uh, neutrals and promoters, because certainly if someone's neutral to negative, there's a chance you can recover that relationship with, I don't know, uh, a free trial or, you know, a 10% discount, something to get them to come back. But if it's a true detractor that's on the scale of NPS, you know, down at the one or twos, you know, that's just just let them go and, and focus on your on your happy customers who are promoting and those who are neutral that you can um, recover and, and uh, really bring them along. So who should who should perform the interview? Should it leaving aside the an outside firm for a second? We'll, we'll get to that. But many firms, I'm sure, in house this process, and if they do. Who who should do that? Should it be somebody in the marketing department? Should it be somebody on the direct service or provider team in the case of professional services? Maybe a dedicated group entirely whose job it is is to to, to interview customers. Um, who, who, if it's an internal agent that's going to be doing that, who who should that be? You know, it really depends on the context. So, for example, if you're talking net promoter score and you're speaking with lost customers. 
you want someone from the customer insights team or someone even from customer service who's trained in having conversations with lost customers and and helping to bring them back to sign up for a three-month trial or or whatever the the business model might be. Uh, But certainly, many customers have those insight teams. They're going to have the experienced moderators that know how to navigate conversations, know how to navigate tricky situations in a uh, customer-friendly manner. So certainly, we, we recommend someone with experience handling them. So when is it a good idea to have an outside firm as opposed to the firm itself, the, the company itself interview the customers? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One could be a, a company or a corporation. Their customer insights team is small and they need to expand capacity and expertise with an outside party. That's one scenario. Um, another scenario is a company doesn't have insights in-house and they could lean on marketing or product marketing, but maybe there's not the expertise. So it's, it's really a, a risk um, and it would make sense to bring in a third party to either design the study, you know, do the comprehensive. Um, and then I guess the, the last point would just be, you know, making sure that no one's leading the answers because certainly you want the insights to be helpful and and true in the sense of making decisions versus what someone wants them to be. Right. Don't, you know, don't, I think Brady Ware is great. Don't you agree? Right. Not exactly an honest interview question, right? I know you've had a great experience with it. So how would you rate it on a scale from one to 10? How much do you love us? Exactly. And so all of a sudden, you know, people might not realize they do that. It's just their natural, you know, optimistic, bubbly selves, and it may not be intentional. So um, it takes out that, um, you know, to have that experience and that fresh, neutral perspective. And, you know, you mentioned the word training and I want to bring something up because I don't think this is always appreciated, but conducting interviews is a skill. It's, it's not easy to conduct a useful interview, is it? You, you don't, you don't just walk up and just do that for the most part, do you? No, you don't. I mean, experienced moderators, I mean, it starts with the design of the questions you know, what is the order of the questions? Um, certainly you want to make sure that you start out uh, not revealing anything if you're looking to get awareness of, of a particular topic or a particular brand, and then potentially reveal the sponsor if it's relevant later in the conversation. So it's really that that design, not only of the flow, but the actual design of the questions themselves so that they don't lead. Um, now what is the benefit of conducting customer interviews versus sending out a survey? Couldn't, you know, some might, someone might say, well, couldn't that accomplish the same thing faster, more cheaply, more efficient? Why go the extra mile, the extra hassle, the expense for doing the interview? Well, certainly I think that there's different reasons to do in-depth interviews over a survey. One, the in-depth interviews, you're going to get more rich context. You're having a discussion. You can, pr- you can listen for certain things and you don't hear 
what you're expecting to hear, or you can probe on topic areas and go deeper into the conversation. So you really can guide the discussion and each one will be a little bit unique. With a survey, for the most part, you're going to have closed-looped questions or, um, you know, they're not going to be open-ended and someone has to choose from six answers. And one of those answers could be, I don't want to answer it or, (laughs) or, you know, I don't know or not applicable. So you're really limiting, you're getting very great information, but you're not getting deep context. So is there an ideal length for how long an interview should take? I mean, I, I got to imagine at some point there's got to be a limit to how much time you can get from somebody. Um, so in your mind, is there an ideal time limit on an interview? Absolutely. I think there's really three types of interviews. There's interviews that feel like a survey where you might ask someone, I don't know, 15 questions in 15 minutes. It's like, are you aware of this? Yes. No, <laughs> right? It's, yep. it's not a conversation. Right. So you can do that in 15 minutes. If you want to have a conversation and really go deeper, I would suggest 30 minutes. Potentially, you could do 45. It's just going to be harder and more expensive. Um, the 60-minute interviews are really going to be around usability, right? So you want to share something on the screen and get feedback. So there's certainly... Uh, different techniques that are going to be appropriate for the different amount of time. Uh, We find that really a 30-minute in-depth interview, that's a conversation, is a tried and true. If you're doing usability, you're going to want a minimum of 60 minutes. What are the – this may be an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, what are the most important questions to ask customers? And for the – purposes of this question, let's say current customers versus prospects or lost customers. What are the what are the kinds of the most important questions? Or if you want to replace important with common, that's fine too. You know, it really comes back to the the learning objective. Because remember, each study is going to be custom designed to fulfill the needs and objectives of the client. So if a client is seeking to understand awareness of their organization, You'd start with asking questions around, you know, how familiar are you with the with the company? Um, tell me, you know, what are they known for? Um, and you might end the survey with, you know, how are they they different, better, or special compared to the competitors? You know, those are very common questions with awareness and trying to understand how to position or reposition a company within within the world. So let, let's. To, to me, I think a common application of a customer interview is to gauge customer satisfaction and maybe detect likeliness to to become an ex-customer um, related to net promoter, I guess. Um, do, do you think that that interviews that are are more structured in nature, you know, the yes, no, or rate this one to five versus unstructured, open-ended which format of questions do you think works better for that kind of purpose or is, is a, is a mix of the two ideal? It's really a mix of the two. So you could ask, um, you know, I want to scale from, you know, typically net promoter. We do that through a quantitative study. It's an, it's an online that comes through, you know, a text message on the phone, an email. Um, 
but you could ask in a conversation for someone to to rate a product attribute on a on a scale from you know zero to five, uh, zero to ten, whatever it is, and then ask them, well, why did you rate that a ten? And then they explain their rating. So that's how I would use a mix of questions, and that that's you know both regardless of the type of study you're doing. So I think, and I think the advanced class in terms of data analytics, which I candidly can't, I, I don't know how to do, is is analyzing the results of those unstructured answers. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you do it? Are there tools that, that you put together that are like language analysis tools that help you do that? Or you know, how do you approach kind of those free range answers to try to, to try to, aggregate them and, and, and pull a, a cohesive story out of them? Yeah, that's a really great question. I have never been asked that. <laughs> I, I love that because unstructured data is hard for some people, right? You know, data, analytics, you know, people work with their Excel sheet, Tableau, these different platforms. Uh, but really with unstructured data, we're looking for themes, right? So it, it's not, um, you know, you certainly want to compare conversation to conversation to identify themes. Once you identify those themes, you know, you'll pull some verbatims to bring color to, to the findings document. So a verbatim would be a direct quote from a, a customer, prospective customer, lost customer that represents the overall story that's been heard for sure. Um, so, so, I'd love it. Give give me an example of when a client of yours, maybe you know, they hired you to to find out something from could be current customers, prospects, ex customers, doesn't matter. And and maybe a maybe the client thought that you know I already know what this, the answer is going to come back, but maybe you came back and surprised them, or the data you didn't surprise them, the data surprised them, the responses surprised them. Can you think of a time when when that happened? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple instances. I mean, especially when you talk about doing an AAU study, attitudes, awareness, and usage, right? A a customer does that to establish a baseline and monitor their brand's performance and how it's perceived in the marketplace uh, with its customers as well as against its competitors. And so, you know, you'll you'll rate brand attributes as far as, um, you know, how the brand performs behaves, you know, do people think that it's, you know, fun to interact with the brand? Do they think that the brand, you know, customer service or communication is is friendly or welcoming, whatever the situation may be? And so a lot of times there might be things that aren't even a hypothesis that comes back of, oh, wow, we didn't realize that we weren't considered a friendly brand. We thought everyone was really warm and welcoming. Gosh, you know, but compared to our competitors, they might be doing a better job. Um, So things that weren't maybe on the radar, especially when you compare it against the competitors. Another example would be in message testing that you find out that, um, you know, you you think your messaging is is resonating um, or you have some new messaging that you want to launch, whether it's, you know, for TV or radio campaign or, um, and you test it and you hear from people that 
wow, I can't believe the brand's talking to me in that manner. It's rude. It's making me feel bad. It's fear-based. And so things that, again, weren't even on the radar to expect to come back, um, surprise that, you know, the data surprises all of us. And the importance of that is the value of the data, right? It's a small investment compared to, you know, the, the marketing and advertising campaign, um, creative, the production, you know, the media buys. I mean, when you look at it and compare it to those budgets, it's, it's probably a rounding error. So it makes sense to um, certainly get that pulse of, oh, yeah, this is resonating or, oh, wow, we should really talk to our team and, and train against this because it's, it's not coming through right to our customers. And, and you know, those, those surprises can, as you said, you know, they can be so instructive and the business you're in to me, um, from my perspective, I should say the business that you're in from my perspective is really the insurance business because for a small amount of a a relatively small investment compared to the overall investment of introducing a new product service company launch, whatever, right. You can find out if you need to course correct or even bail out before you make the really big investment. Absolutely, especially when you're talking about proof of concept or trying to figure out, you know, what price point, what products and features should be the top um, three that are communicated in the marketing that are going to be most, um, you know, interesting and compelling to the customer in in a software solution, for example. I mean, you don't want to put, you know, 15 products, product features when really there's three that are going to compel and motivate the buyer to sign up. I remember when um, at, at the outset of COVID, Apple had a, a very short-lived campaign where they were doing these TV and video advertisements, basically showing people having lots of fun and smiling while they're all in quarantine and using their Apple devices and so forth. And I sensed it, and there was tremendous backlash because basically while, A, millions of people who can't be sequestered were forced to put their lives on the line, in, in service to the rest of the economy and also just sort of completely missing the point that, that the pandemic was serious and it wasn't just a vacation to go home and play on your iPad. You know, I think that was a place where Apple really missed the mark. And I suspect they thought that for sure they really understood what everybody was going for. But that to me, that was a classic case where they, they would have done very well to have stepped outside of their office and hired somebody like you to kind of test that message and give them sort of a reality check because it, it, it truly was a disastrous, you know, Apple can, can withstand that, but, but nevertheless, it was a disastrous campaign that the kind of study that you're talking about, you know, talking to customers would have avoided. Yeah. And I think that, that what's important here is when you talk about, you know, smaller companies, startup companies, you know, these mid-sized companies, it matters, you know, if, if they have a misstep, um, it can mean market share points for them in, in the millions of dollars or, or more. So I think that's a great reminder about, um, you know, just taking the time and being thoughtful to hear from people before you tell them what you think they want to hear. Yep. So we're recording this in a period of of a lot of uncertainty in terms of uh, 
you know, meeting in person, return to office, et cetera, et cetera. Does it, does it impact how you earn to interview or the efficacy of interviews to conduct them virtually or remotely versus in person? And, and if so, what adjustments have you had to make in terms of technique or approach to, to close that effectiveness gap? You know, we've always done in-depth interviews over the phone, right? Because we might have, you know, 20 interviews, but we're speaking with people around the country. So it's not cost-effective to fly to California and then fly to Texas and then over to New York and then to South Carolina. So those would always traditionally be done over the phone. The primary difference is, um, you know, we're now using Zoom. So it's almost... um, better because you get to see the people and it's easier to record. You're not, you know, Jerry rigging some handheld recorder or whatever techniques people use, you know, 10 years ago. Um, And everyone's comfortable for the most part on Zoom. You know, there's a few exceptions, um, but really Zoom or similar platforms, whether it's a a WebEx or a Teams, they're, they're great forum for in-depth interviews. Um, certainly, I think the biggest change has been in-person focus groups, right, where those have gone virtual. Certainly, there's there's plenty of, of current um, focus groups behind the glass that are still occurring. Um, but I think that there are definitely some efficiencies and comfort level with virtual focus groups. And that, that saves people money. You don't have to fly to California to conduct four focus groups. You can you can do them online if there's you know a speed or um, budget constraint for a company. You know you, you you bring that that whole Zoom thing up and it's funny you know we've had the telephone for about 145 years and we've had video calling available for roughly 60 and it re- it was really a niche fringy product nobody wanted to deal with it except for real tech heads until the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden, because there's a virus out there, for some reason now, we don't want to do phone stuff anymore. Everything has to be on video. And it's strange because nothing changed about the core technology or even the use cases just for whatever reason, because we're all in our, for a time, we're all in our homes. All of a sudden we had to do video. Really strange. (laughs) Somebody's going to be writing psychology papers on that. It's been a great tool. And um, I'm surprised we, we haven't like you said, used it more often. I think it just wasn't mainstream or it wasn't um, a platform that was easy, an easy subscription, whereas now it's just part of your, your tech stack. Of So you mentioned something I, wanted, I did want to make sure to touch upon. It sounds like that it is a practice of yours, at least sometimes, to record interviews. And if that's, is, that, is that in your mind a best practices blanket or... Are there some cases where it's more important to record an interview than others? You know, I think that recording the interview has value for transcription, right? So you can really focus on speaking and listening to the participant in the study, and you can go back and, um, you know, if if you're allowed, I mean, there's different parameters depending on the, the study design, You can go back and, you know, cut a video if it's a Zoom and show uh, a minute clip of, you know, 10 customers, what they said, depending on if it's, you know, the parameters. Again, sometimes it's confidential and it's blind and people aren't supposed to know 
who's um, participating, but again, um, there is that opportunity at the right design, but there's also the opportunity to, to transcribe the interview so you have those notes so that you can pull the verbatims. I mean, you can certainly try to type as fast as you can to get those verbatims, and that's certainly possible, but relying on the videos is just a great, again, to use your word, insurance policy that you, you have the notes and all the information to do the analysis. And and I'm I'm guessing I, I know some attorneys feel this way when they do when they take depositions that being able to capture the body language can sometimes be very material to what you glean from that interview. Certainly. I mean, we're not putting anyone under the spotlight where we're grilling them. No, I understand. I understand. You're not waterboarding anybody, but nevertheless, I mean, you can ask a question that may make somebody feel uncomfortable or, or more comfortable. And, you know, I, I, but I'm only speculating, you know, whether it's a deposition or a conversation, right? Body language is meaningful. Yeah. And I, I think that that is interesting, but that's not the, the core of the in-depth interviews, but yeah, yeah, you don't you don't make like a little note saying, "Well, this person shifted in their seat a little bit or <laughs> looked flustered on on interview question number nine? No, all right. I, I think it'll come through if someone hems and haws, and most people will say, "You know what i I just don't have the expertise to talk about that particular question, and it's it's very different with the in-depth interviews. You know, it might be different with a focus group where you're asking someone what do you think about this package design? And they're, you know, trying for all their might to rip something open and, you know, jabbing at it with scissors, all of a sudden someone's body language of, gosh, they can't open this package. It's not designed or consumer friendly. That absolutely matters. And there, there's certainly in-depth interviews that may be more ethnographic in nature where Mm. you can send someone a product and say, all right, I want you to, to work with this product and use the product, and then we're going to have a conversation around it. And at that point, they may share the product, and, and that's where body language would be important for sure. So I, I think you make a very good point. And I, again, it just comes down to what you're trying to learn, and is it yeah. conversation? Is it a, a an ethnographic where you're really trying to learn how someone uses something in their home or office? Um, so many variables. I'm talking with Carolyn Copps, and the topic is should I interview my customers? Um, a couple of questions I wanted to get to get get through here, uh, make sure that we cover. One is: uh, is there any value to interviewing a customer more than once? Maybe not in the same study, but maybe you come back to that same customer a year later, two years later. Um, is there a you know, maybe influencers, I don't know, I'm sort of spitballing, you're the expert, I'm not. But I'm speculating that there could be a, there could be a case in which interviewing the same customer over time might, might yield interesting sort of quasi time series data. Or is that just not a thing? No, I mean, I I don't know that it's a thing. Again, it, it comes back to what you're trying to monitor. So if you're doing an online study where you're establishing a baseline on on perceptions of a certain brand, of course, you're going to want to redo that study in a year or 18 months or two years. You may not send it to the exact same body of people, 
there might be some overlap, but certainly you start to see how perceptions change. Um, also, when you talk about, you know, the NPS surveys, again, it's, it's more that you're repeating to your customer base, right? Of, okay, it's been six months since they received this, this appliance and they've installed it and used it. And, you know, we asked them how everything was going, how the delivery experience was you know, a week after they received it, but now we want to go back and ask them how the experience is with the product. Um, you know, the same with the software, right? So, oh, how, how was it to sign up? Um, was it easy to sign up and, and implement the software? Um, you might ask them that. And then six months later, how happy are you with the software now that you've been using it for six months. So absolutely, there's there's reasons to do follow-up, whether it's monitoring perceptions or following up with uh, an appropriate series of questions as they get more familiar with your product or solution. Um, Carolyn, this has been a, a, a great conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, there are probably questions that somebody wish we would have covered or maybe would have wished we spent more time on going into more detail. If somebody has a question about interviewing customers, can they contact you to, to follow up? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Absolutely. I think the easiest way to find us and all of our contact information is online at our, our website, which is cekpartners.com. So you'll find all our, our social handles there as well as a contact form and a phone number. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Carolyn Kopp so much for sharing her expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also, check out my new LinkedIn group called Unblakable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. <laughs>